with you all again. As Pastor Evan said, we are going to be in Psalm 32, so if you want to go ahead and get there. I don't see a lot of hard copy Bibles anymore. Are they just completely gone? All phones? I see a couple. All right. So go ahead and, and turn to Psalm 32. While, while you're doing that, while you're getting, getting and finding Psalm 32, let me just tell you that um, if you've not made it a regular habit as part of your Bible reading, and I hope you have regular Bible reading, but if you're not coming to the Psalms, you're missing out. You really are. Uh, the Puritans called the Psalms the soul's medicine chest, and I think that's exactly right. We see such a range of life's pains and pleasures in these God-centered poems, and they have a remarkable ability to penetrate and get at deep what ails us spiritually. I knew a gentleman, an elderly gentleman from a previous church, who as part of his daily Bible reading, he, he took what he called his vitamin pack. And what he meant by that was five chapters in the book of Psalms, one chapter in the book of Proverbs. If you do the quick math on that, that means every month he completed the book of Psalms and the book of Proverbs. And he'd been doing this for years. He'd been taking this regimen for years and years, in addition to other Bible reading. And I've thought about that often and what, what strong spiritual antibodies he must have built up over the course of a life. And I want that for myself. And I want that for you. I, I want to have a spiritual immune system that is strengthened and preserved and kept healthy by the book of Psalms. And so that's my prayer for tonight, for this series that it would serve us in that regard. So let's look at Psalm 32. It's just 11 verses. We're going we're gonna to read all of it, although we're not going to say certainly all that needs to be said here. Psalm 32, I'll start in verse 1. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Therefore, let Everyone who is godly, offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters, they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for preserving it for us. Thank you for already making your presence known in our worship tonight. Lord, my, my prayer is that you would grant that your word would be medicine for our souls, 
Only you know what we need, and I pray that you would just allow it to be that for us tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I've titled tonight's message, Happiness by a Heavy Hand. And I've broken the chapter down under five headings there. If you look at your handout, you'll see them. And so we're just going to walk through in order. Certainly, like I said, not going to cover everything that needs to be said here. Um, but the, the, the headings are conclusion, conviction, confession, counsel, and celebration. So first, conclusion. Well, why in the world are we starting with the conclusion first? Right? That's a good question to ask when you read the Bible, questions like that. Well, quite simply, King David, the author of this psalm, that's what he gives us first. He gives us his conclusion up front. And in a sense, I can kind of relate to that. Uh, in my job as a military intelligence officer, over the years I've had the opportunity to brief some fairly senior level decision makers in our government. And oftentimes when you brief at that level, they want what's known as the BLUF. It's an acronym. It's B-L-U-F, the bottom line up front. So before you give them any details, before you give them any, any summary or assessment, you, you, you give them the main point before the details. It's called the bluff. And as I've studied this chapter, I get a sense that's exactly what the psalmist is doing. It's as though he's saying, listen, I, I, have, I have a story to tell you. I want to tell you my story. And I have some counsel I want to offer you. But before we get into any of that, before we get to the details, I need to tell you what's most important to me right now. I'm going to tell you how I come to this conclusion in just a moment. We'll get to that. But first, let me tell you what's defining me, what, what I've come to know personally and experience personally in my own life. So look at verses 1 and 2, and let's, let's see what this is. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. Someone told me the other day, some interaction I was having, that they didn't think the Bible was relevant to our day. You may have heard that before. When I read verses like this, I'm stunned at the relevance. It's, it's as though this truth that David is giving us right up as his own bottom line up front, it, it drives in our driveway here in the 21st century. And it, it parks right out front. It parks in our midst like it belongs here. Here's what I mean by that. This word blessed, look at the beginning there of verses 1 and 2. That word blessed is actually just the word happy. Most Bible translations use the word blessed, but it just means happy. To be blessed in the biblical sense is to ultimately be happy. Happy is the one whose transgression is forgiven. But the word happiness, it, it carries some baggage with it in our day, right? It, it carries the connotation of, of being fleeting, are, are temporary. It's, it's the idea that I'm happy now, but in, just, in a few minutes, I could just as easily be sad or angry or upset. Our, our circumstances change for the worse, and there goes our happiness, right? Happiness for most of us is a mood. But this word blessed, at the beginning here of, of Psalm 32, it it carries a deeper sense than that. It's a, it's a lasting, abiding, more resilient happiness. It's a condition that has the ability to get down deep within us. So if you think about it, and I hope you do, this psalm is actually getting at one of life's big questions. How can I be happy? 
And so when it comes to relevance, you can't find a more relevant subject in our day. You just can't. As a matter of fact, I would argue that we all are experts, trained professionals in happiness management. You didn't know that about yourself, right? But you are. Trust me, you are. You've been building your resume in happiness management since you were in diapers. I have too. Just think about it. You've been asked this question before, but why do you do what you do? Is it not to promote or sustain or prevent the loss of your happiness? We're constantly trying, and I stress that word trying. We're constantly trying to manage our happiness. We buy things to make us happy. We go places to make us happy. We spend time with people who make us happy. Right? We eat Dairy Queen chocolate extreme blizzards to make us happy. That's my favorite. We scroll endlessly through social media feeds again and again for hours. And even, even when we have to do things that we don't necessarily enjoy, like homework or chores or pay the bills, there is a sense of doing it to avoid the unhappy repercussions of not doing it. So again, it goes back to happiness management. We do things to manage our happiness, but the question is, does any of that work? Does any of this work in the long run? What you're doing, what I'm doing? Well, Pastor Evan preached a sermon a week and a half ago. If you've not heard it, I recommend that you listen to it on just this topic from the book of Ecclesiastes. If you've heard that sermon, you know the short answer. Anyone know the short answer? No. This stuff doesn't work. The newness of the latest gadget wears off. Friends will let you down. You will let your friends down. Families break apart, sadly. Vacations end. The Twitter feed needs to be refreshed one more time, right? Every, whenever you see that refresh button, just think, this will not make me happy. <laughs> There's some theology behind the refresh button, I think. If we're honest, the, the fulfillment, the happiness we experience in any given moment from doing things eventually becomes less vivid. It becomes dull. And that's because we live in a fallen World, But our text tonight, this Psalm chapter 32, it comes to us offering an alternative. It sets it before us. It comes fully acknowledging our longing to be happy. And by the way, it doesn't condemn that. But what it does do, instead of offering more stuff to do for happiness, it asks a question. What if there were a happiness that comes not from anything you or I can do, but by something that's been done for us and even to us? So what is the alternative? What is this defining truth for David? Let's glance back one more time at verses 1 and 2. Happiness comes when our transgressions are forgiven, when our sin has been covered, when the Lord does not count our iniquity against us. Three statements expressing the same condition. The psalmist is saying true happiness comes when our biggest problem our biggest problem as human beings, namely our sinful condition before God, has been resolved. Happiness comes when we have been brought into a right relationship with God through the forgiveness of sin. 
You see that, right? It's, I'm, I'm not doing anything special. That's, that's in the text. That's the, that's the conclusion that's thrust upon us right off the bat. Before we get any details, that's the underlying foundational reality for the psalmist. And, it, and it's though it's, it's bubbling to the surface of his life. He can't, he can't not start here. This is too good. He's been affected too deeply by this. It's too important not to share right out of the gate. And that challenges me. I see the fervency of this happiness, and then I look at myself. Do I exude something similar to that? Do you? When I'm with my wife and my children, when I'm at work around my coworkers, are they getting a sense of this deep joy within me? Are those closest to you? Could they put their finger on this reality in you? I want you to think about something. Can you right now put your finger on what makes you most happy in life? Just think about it. And if you can, would it fall into the category of being temporary or lasting? Is it, is it fleeting or is it resilient? What if I polled those who know you best and I said, what makes... Nathan happy, right? What makes Sarah happy? What would they say? Well, think about the answers they would give. Is it possible that they have identified what thrills you most is your relationship with the Lord? Is that possible? If not, if not, this psalm has some help for us, thankfully. True happiness, that's what we're after. But remember, this is the conclusion. So we, we need to be asking, if this is the conclusion, what brought David to this point? The point of bursting forth with, happy is the one whose transgression is forgiven. And we get a sense of where he's going by that last phrase in verse 2. Look back at verse 2. Just that last part. And in whose spirit there is no deceit. No deception. Happiness and deception can't be friends. You need to see that. You will never experience peace in life. You will never experience peace in life while happiness and deception are trying to room together in your heart. It's just not going to happen. So apparently, in order to see and experience what the psalmist is pointing to, he says honesty is going to be a key ingredient. And more specifically, honesty about ourselves. And that takes us to the second heading there, the second point, conviction. Look at verses 3 and 4. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. If we are to partake of this psalm's medicine, we're going to have to let God diagnose our condition. And we're going to have to face our condition, guys, with eyes wide open. No deception. But this is a problem, right? It's a problem for us. Alistair Begg, pastor, he puts it like this. Follow, follow along with this. The Bible calls us to be as honest about ourselves as the Bible is honest about ourselves. 
But the problem for many of us is that we're dishonest about ourselves, and therefore we don't like the honesty of the Bible. In fact, the honesty of the Bible is a very uncomfortable experience. That is why many people put their fingers in their ears, at least metaphorically, when they come up against the sticky parts of the Bible, when they come up against the parts of the Bible that turn the searchlights on their hearts and minds. That rings true with me. And it's clear that David had the spotlight put directly on his heart, on his condition. If we're paying attention, that, that light, it, it belongs pointing at us as well. And what was his condition, by the way, before we pass this up? What, what is our condition? We need to run back to verses 1 and 2 and grab three words. See if you can pick them out. Transgression, sin, and iniquity. Transgression. Very quickly, it means to trespass. God sets up some boundaries. We walk right through them. Right? It's the positive act of law-breaking. Sin. It means to miss God's mark. It was actually a, an archery term, an arrow falling short of the target. So we fall short of God's demands on our lives. It's the negative act of law-breaking. And iniquity. Iniquity is an inward perversion, something that's happening on the inside of us. It's a, it's a slant or a bent toward sin. And you put all three nice clump together, and there's our condition. Transgression, sin, and iniquity. And you need to understand something about sin. Sin's not a popular topic these days, seems like. Rightfully so, maybe. But, but you need to understand this. Before its effects have been felt by anyone or anything, sin is first and foremost rebellion against our Creator God. I hope you understand that. Sin, sin at its root is looking God directly in the face and saying, No! It's not a, it's not a light subject. R.C. Sproul his book, Holiness, which I recommend, describes it this way. Sin is cosmic treason. Sin is cosmic treason. Sin is treason against a perfectly pure sovereign. It is an act of supreme ingratitude toward the one to whom we owe everything. To the one who has given us life itself. Have you ever considered the deeper implications of the slightest sin? Of the most minute peccadillo what are we saying to our Creator when we disobey Him at the slightest point? We are saying no to the righteousness of God. We are saying, God, your law is not good. My judgment is better than yours. Your authority does not apply to me. I am above and beyond your jurisdiction. I have the right to do what I want to do, not what you command me to do. And we don't like hearing that that's, that may be what we're telling God. We don't like to hear that. David certainly didn't like to hear that. Look at verse 3. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. He, he wasn't talking about his sin here. He didn't want to acknowledge the cancer within. He was deceiving himself. Have you ever realized how easy it is to deceive yourself about your sin? Oh, it isn't that bad. It's not hurting anyone. No one knows about it, right? At least I'm better than him. They don't know what I've been through. 
well, I guess I could ask for forgiveness later. And on and on and on the deceptions come. The lies come. We tell ourselves these things. We deceive ourselves. And there may be, right now, there may be hidden sin in your life at this very moment. And I don't want you to walk out of this room deceived. I don't want that for you. Maybe it's, maybe it's things you view online. Maybe it's pride in maintaining your image. Maybe it's jealousy. Maybe you just, in general, have sought happiness from everything in the world but God. And what this psalm is, is calling you to, it's calling me to, is to get serious before the Lord and see where His searchlight is shining. We have to allow God to diagnose our condition. We have to allow God to convict us. And David had begun to see his condition for what it was. He had begun to feel the weight, the severity of his sin. His bones were wasting away. He was groaning all day long. His strength was being dried up. How did that happen, by the way? How did those things happen? Did David just conjure that up? He just conjure those feelings up on his own, by his own sheer power? Verse 3, For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long for day and night. Pay attention. Your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. God's heavy hand was pressing down on David. Pressing him down, making him uncomfortable, making him squirm. Have you ever felt the heavy hand of God? Have you ever been burdened by guilt of something you said or did and it just keeps coming back to you throughout the day? It's just there in your mind. At nights when the lights go off, it's there with you. It's burdening you. Do you know something of the heavy hand of the Lord in conviction? Well, you need to see something. You need to know that the Bible teaches that God's heavy hand is a good thing. It's His grace. Pastor Evan just, just mentioned His mercy, God's mercy. That's God's mercy. He could, he could leave us in our sickness. You get that, right? He owes us nothing. There's no one requiring God to say, convince them that they're in trouble. It's by grace alone that sinners such as we can even see ourselves as sinners. That's grace. We don't deserve that. You know how many good, righteous people there are in this world? Somebody asked you that question. How many, how many good, righteous people there are in this world? There are none. There are none. Romans 3, 10 through 12. None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. But here's the good news. This happiness that the psalmist is pointing to, 
Guys, it's not for good people. It's for sinners through and through. Forgiven sinners. You see that, right? I hope you see this. Do you see yourself as you are? As a sinner in need of forgiveness, in need of covering? Well, the psalmist felt the heavy hand of God and his eyes were opened to the reality of his problem. God had convicted him and he was beginning to take him somewhere. And it takes us to point three, confession. We'll move a little more quickly through these last three. Look at verse five. I acknowledged my sin to you and I did not cover my iniquity. I said I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. God's heavy hand on David's heart led him to acknowledge his sin, to confess his sin to the Lord. He says, I came to a point where I, where I tore the deceptive covering off of my sin. It, it wasn't working anyway, right? Our, our, our efforts to cover our sin before God are utterly useless. Imagine, imagine positioning yourself somewhere, some distance from the Superdome. And you, you take your thumb and you put your thumb in front of your face, right? And you, you adjust its nearness and you close one eye and you, you squint and you get it just right to where you can't see the Superdome. And you proclaim, I've done it! I've covered the Superdome! Well, yeah, from my tiny little skewed perspective. But we're standing right next to you, staring at that big, huge, white dome, thinking you're crazy. Right? That's how silly it is when we think we can cover our sin before God. It's useless. Job 34, 21, 22 says, For his eyes are on the ways of a man, and he sees all his steps. There is no gloom or deep darkness where evildoers may hide themselves. But when we confess our sin, we're actually coming into alignment with God. God knows we're guilty, right? He knows we're guilty. When we confess, it's actually looking God in the face and saying, yes, I am guilty. We're agreeing with God. And, and this means, it means getting low before God. It means humbling ourselves. It means surrendering to God's mercy. We don't deserve it, and we can't demand it. As a matter of fact, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, he said this, if you feel you have any right to forgiveness, you are not, as I understand it, a Christian. Did you hear that? Grace, by, ne- by definition, is completely undeserved. But confession in the true biblical sense, it also includes something else. It includes this act of repentance. And that just simply means turning into the other direction. I'm, I'm going this way, I repent, and now I'm going this way. It's a turning away from sin and turning to God. I could confess my sin all day long. I could do that. I could confess my sin all day long with no intention of ever disregarding that sin, of ever stopping that sin. That would be an empty confession. 
and God has no interest in forgiving sin, I'm not interested in giving up. Confession and repentance go hand in hand. Proverbs 28, 13. Whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. So then what? We confess our sins. We repent. What? Okay, then what? Well, 1 John 1, 9 is the then what? If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If you don't have that verse memorized, can I just tell you to do it? Just memorize it. You need that verse. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. It's interesting that this psalm, Psalm 32, the language here, it actually echoes an earlier passage in Israel's history from Exodus 34. When Moses was up on Mount Sinai, he's receiving the Ten Commandments. God has begun to uh, reveal himself to Moses and to the nation of Israel. And listen to what he says. The Lord passed before him, that's Moses, and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, pay attention, listen to this, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. That's our condition. That's us. This is, who, this is the God to whom we are to confess. This God of mercy and grace who in love presses down upon us with his heavy hand and offers forgiveness to those who acknowledge their sin before him. And when the psalmist experienced this, when he, when he experienced his burden being lifted, when he realized his greatest ailment, his greatest problem, it had been solved, and, and he begins to experience this happiness we're talking about. What did he do? Practically speaking, what happened to him? That takes us to the next point, counsel. Verse 6, Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters, they shall not reach him. Notice the therefore. God's forgiveness, God's happiness caused David to look out at the world around him with, with new eyes, with compassion, with the desire that others may know the same freedom that he had come to experience. So it turns out, being forgiven by God, it, it comes with some bonus features. Many bonus features, actually. One of them is to develop this desire for others to experience this forgiveness that we've experienced. It's actually a good way to examine and test yourself. The Bible calls us to that. So just ask yourself, do I have that desire within me? Do I want to share my faith with those around me? Am I driven to see others come to experience and know this God of mercy and grace? You can answer that question. The psalmist did. He had that desire. But I want you to notice something very important Something else he says here in verse 6. 
Let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. At a time when you may be found. Hmm. So you're telling me there could be a time when God may not be found. You're reading the Bible too, right? You're reading it with me? I'm going to give you some more verses. Let's see what the Bible says. Isaiah 55, 6. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. You don't have to get fancy with the Bible. While he is near. What's that mean? There may be times when he's not near. The Lord, this is 2 Chronicles 36, the Lord, the God of their father, sent persistently to them by his messengers because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. But they kept mocking the messengers of God, despising his words and scoffing at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord rose against his people, until there was no remedy. Guys, there's weight to those words. I hope you're feeling the weight of them. One more, Proverbs 1, 28 to 29. Then they will call upon me, but I will not answer. They will seek me diligently, but will not find me, because they hated knowledge and did not choose the fear of the Lord. We need to be informed by passages like this. So what, what do they mean to us? If we're to seek God when he's near, what, what, what does this mean for us? It means today is the day of forgiveness. If you're hearing God's word tonight and he's speaking to you and you're feeling guilt, today is the day of forgiveness. If he's pressing down on an area in your life that you know isn't as it should be, the Lord is near. It's really not complicated. If you hear God's voice, if your strength is being dried up by guilt, postponing or delay, it's only going to harden your heart, and it's going to do something else. And this is the big risk. It's going to tempt you to think that you actually have control and come to God on your terms, at your leisure. The Bible says that's not the case. Today is the day of forgiveness. Well, there's lots more to say here. As the psalmist comes to a close, it's as though he turns one last time and he looks, looks at where he was. It's as though he looks over his shoulder at where he came from. The pain and agony of living in unconfessed sin, of groaning day in and day out, his bones wasting away. And he offers one final word of counsel. Look at verse 10. He says, many are the sorrows of the wicked. Many are the sorrows of the wicked. He's telling us from firsthand experience. Guys, I'm telling you, believe me. Many are the sorrows of the wicked. He knows something of the Lord's heavy hand. But he doesn't end by looking to the past. He closes his psalm in outright celebration. Look at the last two verses. Last point here. Celebration. 
Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. Those who know the forgiveness of God are those who celebrate that forgiveness. People who have seen the depths of their sin swallowed up in the expanse of God's forgiveness are people who rejoice in that reality. That's just how it happens. But I'll tell you this. If you have a shallow view of sin, if you have a shallow view of of understanding what forgiveness meant to God, what it means to us, I promise you, I promise you, you will have a shallow reason to celebrate. Our joy in knowing God through the forgiveness of sin will be in direct proportion to our understanding of how lost, how sinful we truly were. To be called righteous by God, that's no small thing. For our Creator thrice holy God to look upon sinners and call them righteous. It's no small thing. It's interesting that in another place in Scripture, God called David a man after his own heart. probably heard that before. But even still, he was a sinner. David was a sinner through and through. King David, this, this great man of God, still needed to confess his sin. He still needed to be declared righteous by the Lord. And how is that possible? How is Psalm 32 sitting amidst our Bible tonight? How is it possible that this great king who lived some 1,000 years before the New Testament could experience this forgiveness? We're in the Old Testament, right? How is it possible? Well, it's only because one day there would come another king and he would have no reason to confess. In him there was no deceit. Perfectly sinless. Perfectly innocent before God. King Jesus came and lived a life we couldn't, and then suffered and died the death we deserve. He suffered the punishment for transgressions, for sin, for iniquity. It's staggering. God could cover David's sin. God can cover my sin. God can cover your sin because He didn't cover them on Jesus. He exposed them. He pressed them down upon his very son with a heavy hand. Isaiah 53.10 It was the will of the Lord to crush him. David could celebrate forgiveness. We get to celebrate forgiveness because it turns out happiness truly does come by a heavy hand. Pastor Evan's going to Come and close us out. Didn't keep you guys too long, hopefully. But I want to end with this. David believed God's promises. 
his promises of forgiveness, and he found what every single human being has ever sought. He found what you're seeking. He found what I have sought in my own life. And my question for you tonight is this. Do you know this true happiness? Search your hearts. Do you know the happiness that comes by a heavy hand? Do you know the happiness found only, only in being forgiven in Christ? I pray that you do. I pray that you do.